politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast here at Blaze Media on this Friday. Thank God for Fridays. We love the end of the week, September 25th. And, um, you know, the more time goes on, the more nothing changes. You know what we have in this country? As we noted yesterday, we have people getting arrested for not wearing a mask outside. So by that token, can we have arrest for attempted murder outside? Is that okay? So now we have the reinforcement and reintensifying of rioting every single week because there's always a criminal who happens to be black who has to be shot by police because they're a threat and they're a danger to police, to others. And there is a new rule where if you have sufficient amount of melanin in your uh, skin, well, you are not subject to the just and moral laws of murder. And now we had, we saw last night in LA, this driver who made every effort to get around the Fallujah-style Shiite militia checkpoints that are set up. And and it's like, you could imagine if they're there for five, ten minutes before police could come down is one thing. But like, they're there indefinitely for hours and nothing happens to them. They're able to violently menace motorists. And then this motorist ran away, but this time they actually had a BLM dude in a truck chase the person down, almost dragged him out to beat him. The cops did come, but then arrested the motorist, the victim, and again, we don't see any arrests or even breakup of of the, the checkpoints. We are living in Afghanistan. This is not Joe Biden's America. Joe Biden is not president yet. This is happening often in red states, but it's certainly happening everywhere with Trump as president. Where is Trump's plan? Where is the military securing these areas? Where is Trump calling up the Insurrection Act? Where is DOJ? This is what I don't get. But meanwhile, they are literally going and just arresting everyone. For simply not wearing a diaper on their face. For a virus that more and more is becoming like a cold. More and more we learn. I haven't had time to put this out. But if you look at the all-cause deaths. I looked at a state like Tennessee for example. But it's really like. I mean West Virginia certainly. It's almost any state outside of the Northeast I mean, some of the bigger ones like Florida and Texas have finally gotten a certain amount, but even then, it's still not that remarkable. You look at the all-cause deaths, and it really is unremarkable because like we said, most of the people who are dying would have died within a year. There's actually fascinating research put out, analytics by, and I'm forgetting the name of it, but it's the top largest for-profit funeral company in America and they put out a revenue report now you'd think they would you know they want to make money 
So they would be very accurate. Hey, you know, how much revenue are they making? And they look at a window of time and they know that, yeah, revenue is up to a certain degree, but not that much. Because it's spread out and they predict what went up this year is going to go down next year. Because even among those, so A, a lot of them were total BS deaths and other BS COVID deaths. They died of natural causes. They just tested positive for COVID. Or like most people who die of, you know, pulmonary, cardiovascular, cancer, the day or two before they die, they start having trouble breathing. So like, oh, trouble breathing. Well, that's a COVID sign, COVID symptom. It's pegged as a COVID death. But even among those that did die legitimately of COVID where like, you know, if you would have done an x-ray of their lungs, you would have seen it. They would have died either this year or, or next year. And again, I mean, that, that, that's, that's sad. But when you put in broad perspective, you don't really see it on a line graph. And in fact, what you do see in a lot of states like Tennessee is a sharp spike in excess. The, the sharpest spike you see in excess deaths are among people in their 20s and 30s. Well, Daniel, maybe that's from COVID. Well, no, because if you do the math, you look at even the COVID deaths that are ascribed to them, which are way overstated, it's a fraction of the number of excess deaths that you're seeing. So it's, it cannot be from COVID. And of course, it's from drug overdoses and suicides and other things like that. And again, even among seniors or middle-aged, how many of the excess deaths were due to untreated care because of our panic and our response. Which is why, again, in Sweden, you look at the excess deaths, and there literally, there are no excess deaths in Sweden. There are no excess deaths. When I say no excess deaths, I mean, it's at the higher end of the last 10 years or so. But there were other years, one five years ago, one a little bit before that, that were actually even higher. And especially if you factor in that the last two years of the flu season were very, very mild in Sweden. So this was really clearing out the typical annual flu deaths. So if you factor in a three-year average, there literally are zero excess deaths in Sweden. They did no rituals, no shutdown, no closing of the schools, no masks, no panicking everyone and having... <clears throat> you know, depression and killing an entire generation of people's mental health and emotions and life streams. And after all that, there are no excess deaths in Sweden. Now, again, there are various, could be various genetic or geographical, other unexplained phenomenon, why all the Nordic countries, to be fair, would be better off than America. There are, there are some COVID excess deaths, but what I'm trying to tell you is it really is mainly confined to New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, couple other areas here and there, parts of Massachusetts, obviously, some other areas in the Northeast, a few other areas in the rest of the country. You look at more than half the country easily, even up to three quarters of the country, it's little to no excess deaths when you drill down to it. But 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 for something that is no worse than than the 2018 flu season that no one ever heard of, our lives were never disrupted because of it. We now have tyranny, arrests, but no arrests for the anarchy. No arrests 
for the anarchy. But what do we have here? Do we have a united Republican Party at a federal level in all the fifth in all the states where Republicans control introducing DeSantis's legislation to go ahead and slap the funders and organizers of these violent insurrections with RICO to have special felonies for blocking traffic, for de- destroying property, for assaulting police officers? Barring people convicted of this stuff from getting state benefits or federal or or uh, government employment in the state, many good provisions in his plan. Buttressing self defense. Nope. Tim Scott, the next latest and greatest rising star in the GOP, senator from South Carolina. Brianna Taylor's life and so many others must be seen as a beacon for change not a war cry for bloodshed. Say their name and demand change, not destruction. Justice is not equal revenge. So while opposing, like, murdering people as a result of it, yeah, guys, don't do that. Like, they have a legitimate grievance and we need to seek change and justice. Every single one of these stories turned out to be a lie. There was no unjust murder. Either they weren't murdered because of that, like in the case of Floyd, or they downright deserved to be, they were killed by the cop, but they deserved it. They had to do that. And notice every one of these people are terrible human beings. I mean, could they for once at least pick an icon that didn't have a past rap sheet of a terrible human being? Please, just one? So not only... Did the police actually knock and announce themselves and they were shot at by, by her boyfriend, which is why they returned fire. But um, it turns out that Brianna Taylor, this great new saint, actually had a rap sheet. Had a rap sheet. A pretty nefarious one at that. Basically, like a body was found in the trunk of her rent-a-car one time. I was like, yeah, I hate that when that happens. Happens all the time. I have bodies in my rental cars. The documents allege that back in 2016... Here, let me let me read this for you. Um, this is from WKYT in Kentucky, local media. Obviously, I think it's a CBS affiliate. And um, basically, there was an outstanding warrant. That's first of all. That was a drug house. But um, where is this here? I'm just trying to find this. Documents also allege that back in 2016, the body of Fernandez Brownman was found in a car rented by Brianna Taylor when LMPD, that's Louisville detectives, arrived at Taylor's home to question her. Glover was there. That's the boyfriend that shot at police. Taylor told the detectives she did not know Bauman, that she had been dating Glover for several months, and that she had let him drive the rental car. <laughs> She also gave detectives her phone number, which is a number that Glover was still using as recently as February of this year. 
Dead homicide victim was the brother of Demarius Bauman, one of Glover's associates, who had been arrested with Glover numerous times. And there, there's a whole history here. So, um, yeah, I, you know, that, that tends to happen to all of us, all of us saints, um, where we just kind of get other people's bodies in our cars from time to time. This is the degree of immorality that we're living through. But I want to get to our guest and our main topic today to get back to the courts. Now, uh, as a sponsor of our special guest, today's show, I want to introduce you again to Bills.com. Being in debt sucks. Everyone knows that. Credit cards, student loans, mortgages, heck, medical school, law school, things like that. Now, often you don't have like some others, a federal court or a state court, as we're going to talk about today, just making laws for you. Hey, you know, the landlord can't kick you out or, you know, your debt is is vitiated. We literally have that going on in court now. Well, for you and I, we don't have access to that. But there is a way that you could defeat your debt thanks to Bills.com. I want you guys to go for your free debt assessment. Okay, so I'm not asking you to purchase any product here. The first step to lowering your monthly payments and getting to that point where you're debt-free is getting that free debt assessment. It literally only takes a few minutes to plug in your information. So they they tell you exactly what you need to put in there. You could save hundreds or, or maybe even thousands on your monthly payments. Very, very important. Um, they're part of the Freedom Financial Network, which has been in business since 2002, settled over, a, over $10 billion in debt. Take the first step to defeating your debt. Get your free debt assessment today. So go to bills.com slash conservative. For those of you who don't know how to spell, that is B-I-L-L-S dot com forward slash conservative. Bills.com forward slash conservative. So as an introduction to our discussion about the courts, I really think it is relevant to note what we just talked about. See, we are living in a society where the competing values of red versus blue, and I don't mean Republican versus Democrat, but the crazy communist anarchists versus normal Americans, whether they think they're conservative, call themselves conservatives or not, you cannot bridge that divide. You cannot bridge a divide between those who think that murder and violent crime is not a problem, but the only crime that there is is not wearing a mask. Right, You cannot bridge that divide. And what, what we really see that is in the courts. See, we, we think, oh my gosh, these anarchists, if they ever got in power, imagine if Biden wins, imagine if they win the Senate. You know, you have Ilan Omer and these people with more power. And they are going to implement those values. In other words, anarchy and tyranny. Tyranny for us and anarchy for their protected classes. But... Here's the deal. We've had for 50, 60 years to varying degrees with judicial supremacism in the courts where those values are made permanent. It's an amazing thing. When we're talking about a Supreme Court nominee, it really is reflected in the values we're seeing in the country now. What's up is down. What's down is up. What's in is out. What's out is in. What's a state right is considered a federal power. What's a federal power is given to the states. What's a real fundamental right, like being able to breathe fresh air outdoors, 
or having your business or church open? Nope, nothing to see there. But a fake right, the right to immigrate, the right to an abortion, the right to have a state redefine marriage and offer you a certificate, the right for a man to be a woman, the right for 30 days of early voting, the right to ballot harvest, that's all in the Constitution. You cannot bridge that divide. So as I noted yesterday, and I haven't gotten a chance to talk about this, but make sure you check out my article at The Blaze, 16 Questions that we should get answers from any nominee. I don't have anyone in, in, in mind in particular. They are very pointed questions, but they're not... In other words, what I'm, what I'm going for is not like the equivalent on a political level of let's abolish everything on the entitlement level since the New Deal. You know, something that's very aspirational, but unfortunately very unrealistic. I'm talking about things that like, you know... Is transgenderism in the 14th Amendment? I mean, is birthright citizenship for illegal aliens in the 14th Amendment? What's the Privileges and Immunities Clause? Does the power over public health, the police powers of a state, allow them to quarantine healthy people without any due process, without any evidence, indefinitely, through executive fiat? Are there any limitations on that? I mean, these are basic questions that affect us right now, and no one's bothering to ask them. Now, I don't have anything against any of the names that are being circulated, as I actually did with all the other times. And I was right about the specific concerns I had about each one. I felt Kavanaugh in general, there wasn't a particular issue that was problematic, but in general, he had maybe a 50% Roberts in him in the sense that he might think something is a certain way constitutionally, but because of the political fallout from a certain decision, he's only going to go so far, and he'll often join the left to balance things out. Not maybe quite as much as Roberts. We're seeing that. We're seeing that dogmatic adherence to Roe and even Hellerstadt in some of his abortion writings. And then with Gorsuch, I said, look, he's very libertarian, I don't mean traditional libertarian. I mean the new hip libertarian. And, you know, the issues that I think his constitutional understanding overlaps with ours, he will be bolder than Kavanaugh. Maybe sometimes, you know, with with Thomas, we've certainly seen that. But where he's bad, oh boy, is he going to be bad. And we saw that with an opinion that is probably going to be more overarching and consequential in our lives than Obergefell in the Bostock opinion, where basically a man is a woman female sports, college dorms, Catholic schools. We're certainly seeing that where I am, St. Joe's Hospital here in Baltimore um, is being slapped with a lawsuit based on Bostock to cover uh, castration operations. So where are we headed with this next nominee? With us today is a guest I've been meaning to get on for a while, but if you're talking courts, you want to talk to Josh Hammer. Josh is now opinion editor of Newsweek Magazine. He's a syndicated columnist. He writes tons of columns, uh, numerous publications, both legal and political. He is counsel at First Liberty Institute, former clerk for Judge Jim Ho of the Fifth Circuit. Josh, thanks so much for joining us today. Daniel, it's been way too long. Thanks to, thanks for having me on, my friend. Yep, it has been too long. All right, so 
obviously I know you would have rather your former boss, Jim Ho, to <laughs> be on the short list. Um, we all know with his paper trail that that's not going to happen. But let me let me actually start with that. Let me start with Jim Ho. It seems like there is a, it's like a seesaw. There's an inverse relationship between someone's likelihood of being selected, even when Republicans have the presidency and the Senate, and us having certainty about where they are. And to be fair, with most people, we really don't know what they're going to do. Even if they're already a federal judge or a state judge, we just don't know. We might know philosophically where they are, uh, legally where they are, but more importantly, do they have the guts to deal with the political fallout like Scalia and Thomas did, but nobody else ever of the 13, uh, the 11 of the 13 other GOP picks since Nixon had that those guts. Rehnquist and, and Alito would be maybe the next tier, but really nothing after that. But then you get a guy, a rare guy like a Jim Ho, a Bill Pryor. They speak their mind. They they write it in their concurrences and there are other opinions. It's unmistakable. But because of that, they're never going to pick. Josh, in in Amy Barrett, and assuming that is the pick, and you'll let us know if, if there's anything more going on, are we getting getting it all? Are we getting someone that we have the confidence they will be what we want? but they don't have, you know, kind of the Jim Ho writings that will get the, you know, Mitt Romney's of the world to, to bail on them. So a few things, obviously, um, to be clear, my top choice, you know, definitely would have been my former boss who, you know, beyond a shadow of any doubt whatsoever would be a, you know, lockstep vote with Clarence Thomas on virtually every issue that comes before the court. Um, but, you know, I mean, you also flagged Judge Pryor. You know, it's funny. Someone someone tweeted to me um, after Justice Ginsburg passed away, besides your former boss, who are your top two, you know, to round out the top three. And I, I quote tweeted the tweet and I said, well, you know, if age and gender and all that stuff is not being considered here, I would still go with Bill Pryor or even Edith Jones of the Fifth Circuit. Judge Jones is, you know, she might be like 70 years old now, but she's probably going to live till she's 95. I mean, she's in such good health and she's solid as a rock. But um, you're you're obviously raising the right concerns here, Daniel. You know, I went on our friend Steve Dace's Blaze TV show on Tuesday, and we, we, we had a similar discussion. And what I what I said to Steve was there was a column. I, I, I'm obviously no longer at The Daily Wire, but I wrote a column for The Daily Wire about a year and a half ago or so. It was uh, the final column of a series of columns during the week that you may recall uh, Senator Josh Hawley was kind of grilling Naomi Rao of the D.C. Circuit. And a lot of kind of D.C. Beltway legal eagles were kind of flipping out at Josh Hawley. It was very it was very revealing as to the intellectual and I think institutional rot in the legal conservative movement. But the final column that I wrote that week, which I think is held up quite well, actually, it was said three things that conservatives must look for in judicial nominations and really for Supreme Court nominations, of course, above all else. The first one, which is going to be obvious to people like me and you, but I guess it's less obvious to a lot of Beltway DC insider folks, is actual, genuine, full spectrum conservatism. No more Koch brothers, libertarian, administrative, state centric kind of deregulatory, quote unquote, conservatives. We, we saw what happened when we focus on people who obsess incessantly over Chevron doctrine, our doctrine, you know, things like that. That was Neil Gorsuch. Like that, he was like the pick of that crowd. 
And we now see what, we, what we've got in there. So the first of the three things that I wrote in this column was we need to see that you care not just about the libertarians issues, but about our yes. issues, about the plenary power doctrine, Daniel, that you talk about over and over again, about Title VII, 14th Amendment. Where do these rights come from? Privileges or immunities clause. The issues that really cut to the core of whether you are not a Koch brothers libertarian, but an actual conservative. That's the first issue. The second issue is whether you have the steel, and you talked about this, Daniel, already in your little lead up there, is whether you have the fortitude and the spine to go to D.C. and not get stuck in, you know, the proverbial Georgetown cocktail party circuit, the infamous Linda Greenhouse effect that has happened to Republican nominees over and over and over again. Anthony Kennedy, Sandra Day O'Connor, David Souter, John Roberts, and apparently now Neil Gorsuch. I mean, I don't need to go down the list. These names kind of live in infamy in Republican judicial circles for a reason. And we need to know that you have bled for the cause and that you are willing to take the arrows that will be slung yeah. at you and then be able to, to stand up there like Clarence Thomas and basically just not care. So that's the second one. And then the final one of the three things that I wrote in this column is you need to be able, willing, and eager to actually exercise the Supreme Court power in its fullest authority. And you write about this as well as anyone out there right now in, in conservative media. It, the Article Three power at the Supreme Court level is not limited, obviously, to just writing opinions and dissenting. There's the shadow docket, there is granting cert, there is eagerness to hear mm -hmm. cases, there is swatting down erroneous lower court opinions. There is a million different things that you can do. And of course, stare decisis and precedent fits into this as well. The, uh, you know, the timing of our discussion actually is really interesting. I published a pretty lengthy essay on stare decisis just this week, actually, on Tuesday. Um, so happy to go into that if you'd like. But those are, those are the three things that I would prioritize in looking at a nominee. Um, now, with the caveat that, uh, you know, like I said, uh, when I mentioned Judge Ho, Judge Pryor, Judge Jones, like my true top choices in kind of the intellectual abstract are not being considered right now. Um, I, I, I do strongly predict it will be Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, that, that is definitely my prediction. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that she will be a good justice. I am not willing to like predict that she will be a Clarence Thomas or anything like that. that I think that's crazy and no one can predict that. Um, but for what it's worth, and again, like I hate playing this game. This, I, I, the listeners and viewers are going to hate this, and I recognize that. But for what it's worth, I do know people who like who really do know her closely from you know Notre Dame world and whatnot, and they say that in private she has you know called Roe versus Wade an abomination, similar to how Judge Pryor famously did, mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, she clerked for Scalia. She's she, she, she's known to have Scalia tendencies on on in a lot of her jurisprudential views. So I really do predict she would vote the right way on kind of abortion, religious liberty issues like that. Um, but her record is not flawless. I'm not going to like pretend like there aren't some black marks there, um, especially on some issues that you and I care about. I so mean, what uh, are that, some concerns? Yeah. So she had. Um, she had one opinion. It was called uh, Watson. I can't remember the other party in 2018. It was a reasonable, reasonable suspicion of, of a Fourth Amendment case that struck me as just coming out the wrong way. It was uh, a little too pro-criminal for, for my taste. Mm. Um, uh, there was an uh, there was an en banc. Uh, an en banc immigration uh, ruling. I think I came out came out earlier this year or last year. Uh, the, fa the the specific fact pattern escapes me, but it struck me as not ideal. 
there was there was one ruling from this past May on so-called Monell liability, which is kind of a doctrine pertaining to how you can hold civil local government actors liable. Um, it, it struck me as a little too pro-plaintiff coming out the wrong way there as well. Um, and then even she had a very famous dissent. It was one of her first real landmark lengthy writings, like a 30 to 40 page dissent on felons and guns. It was a like second amendment. It was, it was kind of the intersection of uh, felon rights and second amendment rights. And she came out on the side of the second amendment, which I think made a lot of people, you know, in the broader legal conservative movement, very happy, including a lot of my close friends. But I, I wasn't fully sold. It, it, it read to me as a little too pro felon, a little too Neil Gorsuch jailbreaky, uh, for lack of a better term. So uh, I don't know. Um, I, I, she's not. I, 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 like I said, I'm not going to predict she's going to be a Clarence Thomas rock solid on every issue before the docket. Mm. But on you know the issue above all else that has motivated legal conservatives for 50 years now, of course, which is overturning Roe versus Wade and its you know murderous progeny. Um, I, I do predict that she will be solid on that one. Which you know it's probably about time that we prioritize that. Well, I mean, to me, that those are the, the big three are, you know, the the succession of Roe, Obergefell, and Bostock. And the question is, how many votes do we have to overturn those three? Well, we know Thomas would all three. Um, you know, and then, <laughs> then it gets kind of iffy. I mean, Alito would definitely overturn Hellerstad, um, you know, the, those middle ground sort of regulations, the Gosnell regulations. Uh, requiring certain standards for the clinics, the doctors providing the abortions. Um, but then, you know, beyond that, it gets it gets sticky. And I guess what bothers me is this. So you mentioned some very minor concerns about certain opinions with Amy Barrett. I am a little bit concerned about her signing on to Diane Woods' opinion, very categorically saying that th- at this stage in the epidemic, there are no Jacobson v. Massachusetts forecloses any 14th Amendment problems with what these governors are doing. Now, I don't know enough about the case, but what I do know, there might be avenues for an originalist to say that given the standing and the narrowness of the parties in that case, she might have had a reason to think the lawsuit didn't pass muster but I would have liked to have seen a concurrence there, at least if that is the case, because the verbiage from Diane Wood was very disturbing. And again, Josh, I say this just to bring up the general problem that I have. And I do have a better feeling about her and even the other ones being mentioned than I did with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, where I downright had negative vibes on certain aspects. But why is it that we have to guess? In other words, I get this thing, Daniel, we can't be outed. Josh Hawley, be quiet. Don't blow our cover. Stop asking embarrassing questions from the right. That will explain. I get it, but I only get it, Josh, if we were fooling them, not ourselves. In other words, if we knew who the person was, we, it was like, you know Jim Ho without his having been on the Fifth Circuit writing those things, and then just, all right, you run with it, and you kind of run out the clock, and you do the Ben Sass shtick that you joke with them about their hometown or something, and use your time now not asking substantive questions. But my concern is that we're not even in private getting, like, I understand you're not going to bring up a specific case. I mean, 
Whether I agree with that fully, I don't know. But let's just say that's a given that you shouldn't talk about a specific case that could come up. But we should know in an era where we have worse violations of our civil rights than any time in the history of our founding. And you and I are very much not into concocting rights beyond the bare minimum of what they're created. States, through the political process, could do what they want. But with that said, there is a time when you do violate Blackstone's basic definition of individual liberty and we need to know, are there limitations to what the government governor is doing? Again, as always, caveat, you know what my feeling, Josh. It's, it's not that even if the judge would issue a good opinion, that that is going to be the final say on that broad opinion. But if we're going to have the courts be that resolving body for everything else, you better believe I do want us to reserve that prerogative, that ability to come before a court and um, where you, you know, it's not a matter of striking down broad things just as an individual. Don't throw me in jail or find me for not wearing a mask. Here's why I think that's not constitutional. Um, you know, the arbitrary executive edicts. I don't No one's even asking that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think you're flagging and this is obviously incredibly relevant. I mean, this is one of the most relevant legal issues for our time is, you know, the, the relationship between state police powers, constitutionally enumerated rights, unenumerated rights, incorporation of the Bill of Rights. I mean, it's the intersection of these doctrines and these issues that, you know, if we were being intellectually serious about this, I think these would feature quite prominently um, at a Senate Judiciary Committee confirmation hearing. Um, you know, the Jacobson versus Massachusetts case from 1905, it's not obvious to me that 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 case is wrongly decided. Actually, the question is whether it counts as you know quote unquote precedent for yep. what we're currently looking at. It's whether the, the same the same principles actually apply. Um, I, I I I have to confess I'm not super familiar with the Judge Wood opinion that you mentioned, sure. but I mean, but you know, Judge Judge Wood she 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 taught at my law school. I mean, she you know she she taught classes at the University of Chicago ah, Law School, right. and she, she's obviously you know one of the I would say one of the higher profile liberals um, on the entire, you know, on the entire federal appellate bench. So that's, that, 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 yep. you know, without, without knowing more, that's definitely a little troubling. Um, look, Daniel, the issue is that uh, obviously here we're trying to replace Justice Ginsburg. Okay. And like you and I, like we hate identity politics. Okay. Like identity politics is, is, is disgraceful. I wrote a column in July, I think it was, the title of the column was Intersectionality Versus America, because you really, you can't have both. You can only have one. This, this entire intersectionality, multiculturalist, identity politics and nonsense is the complete antithesis of, you know, the e pluribus unum principle that undergirds our entire constitutional republic. So, so, so I, I, I could not feel more strongly about that. Having said that, um, you know, we we look outside, we see what is happening to this country, the the anarchy, the arsonists, the motorists being stopped. I mean, it, it, it is unbelievable. The cops being shot in Louisville. Um, and you have to think about this in a certain way, I think. And something that I've talked with, you know, a lot of friends about is. I, you and I both know, Daniel, that this court is assuming it is barren is confirmed is not going to overturn Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. But I think there's a chance and a chance that the next justice in a second term 
might. I'm not going to predict it, but I, I think it's possible that with one more justice, they might. And I, I, at that point, here's the, here's the calculus that I've been thinking a lot about. The calculus is we are living in a time when people are rioting in the streets. We see, we all remember the videos of Justice Kavanaugh when he was literally swearing on the Bible to be confirmed. People were physically banging on the doors. Like this was like right out of like a horror film. <laughs> And like these court opinions have so little legitimacy as it stands. So something that I've thought about is a prospective court, which again, you know, would have to be well into a second Trump term, if not, you know, after that, um, that actually overturns Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. It really, for purposes of, of public legitimacy and acceptance, if nothing else, it probably does need to have a woman in that in that majority and ideally mm. ideally writing the opinion itself. Mm. So that takes a certain kind of woman, of course, someone with yep. true nerves of steel. And my ideal choice again would be Edith Jones of the Fifth Circuit, notwithstanding oh, yeah. <laughs> her age, because she, you know, she gives zero you know what about what people think about her. Um, but viewed through that lens. Um, of the people, you know, who are uh, age appropriate or age eligible, um, you know, I, I, as someone who's very pro-life, I was involved with law students for life in law school. I've done marches for life and all that stuff. Um, viewed through that lens and that calculus that I kind of just explained, it, it's hard for me to be too upset about Amy Coney Barrett if she is the pick, notwithstanding oh, the sure. concerns that, that not, notwithstanding all the concerns that I laid out. Yeah, no, no, and and I'm, I wouldn't be upset either. I mean, again, I I think my and this is really just shooting from the hip. We we don't know, and that's part of my problem. My best assessment would be an Alito, and that's okay. It's pretty pretty good. Um, I I don't think you could ever assume a Thomas unless you know it. That would be more like a Jim Ho. Um, and that would be better than my assessment of what Kavanaugh and Gorsuch was, and, and that's fine. But what I do want people to understand is understand what it is don't lie to me don't say this is the road to the promised land and then when i lay out well okay so do you have answers on this well daniel i didn't mean that degree of originalist okay then then fine well you know that person couldn't get confirmed well we could debate that but but if that's true then fine but but then just be honest with me that we're not winning the judiciary in the way you think we are the reason why it's important we be honest is because this is not just an academic debate this is a very live fire debate, and I want you to tell me if you agree or disagree with what I'm envisioning happening. You see, on paper, it sounds like we are going to win the court. I mean, because then you'd have officially now five justices, even without Roberts. So, you know, the left is going to view this as, oh, my gosh, I mean, they're going to have what, 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 what we always complained about the other side having – and the left is very different than the so-called right in that our guys are like the left comes in one day and says, OK, here's the deal. Everything that ever is debated in society, whether it's you know societal, whether it's extremely novel, extremely destructive, no matter what, five justices on a Supreme Court could decide it at any time, irrespective of the history and precedent. Um, and that's the way it is. And there's nothing you can do unless you amend the Constitution to change that. And our guys are like, OK. Like and, and they totally go along with it. So like even if that would mean that theoretically you'd have a scenario where Democrats would get to appoint all nine justices, they'd be like, well, that's, that's, that's how it is. There's nothing we can do. Democrats, they're not like that. They're not like, 
oh my gosh, a, a conservative majority, uh, we, we lost it. No, they're going to fight back. So there's a very interesting thing that I, a lot of my listeners have emailed me, and it's a fascinating thought. Am I going to get my wish? In other words, my longstanding wish was that we would delegitimize judicial supremacism. If we had statesmen, we would actually, on our side, go to the Democrats and say, hey, let's make a bipartisan pick. You want Garland on the court? You can get Garland. But here's the deal. We are going to affirm in some way um, that these type of cases that address certain principles, that if you want to bring it to the court, you could bring it there. And if they want to render an opinion, they could render it. But we're going to take Lincoln's view on the role of the other branches of government in the states in the scheme of judicial rulings affecting the whole of the people, like on things of uh, pertaining to election law, national sovereignty, when does life begin, what's a marriage, what's a man, what's a woman, things that really are not you know, individualized, justiciable, civil, criminal cases, you know, it's obvious when those things come up and we're going to continue to slug it out. Um, I would have loved to have seen that, but of course it's not happening. Our guys are like, no, no, we're, we're here. We're getting our majority. We're getting a majority. Meanwhile, the left feels like they're losing the game. They're going to change the game. And everything that People in the Federalist Society told me, Daniel, the movement is not with you. We're never going to do this thing. We're never going to try to limit or affirm the limitations that already exist of the court's power. The left is like, it's mainstream. They're saying, maybe we should get rid of judicial supremacism, what they call judicial review. Maybe we should limit their terms. We should have a different scheme. We should add more justices. Do you see if Amy Barrett is successfully confirmed to the court and whether Trump wins or not, certainly if he doesn't win, then they would have a lot of power. They'd likely get the Senate too. But even if he does win, remember they do have the States or a number of state governments. Here's what I envision. I have an article out today noting how um, on the issue of guns, I really do believe that we will have five votes to finally affirm Heller, strengthen Heller and McDonald, and really possibly go after some of these state laws that categorically ban right to carry, like in Maryland where I am, or the very sweeping so-called assault weapons bans and mag capacity bans. I think though I, I really do think we we probably have the five votes. Kavanaugh would be the most uncertain, but you know, it's very likely we do have him. But here's the deal. The states will do to Heller, even after that, what we always wanted to do in, to Rowan Obergefell and, and at a federal level on immigration, but never did. They'll be like, thank you very much, but we're going to continue um, our regulations and enforcing them. I mean, isn't that where we're headed? Yeah, it really does seem that way, Daniel. You know, as, as I tweeted the other day, it's it's been kind of hilarious for me to see all these takes, I mean, Jamel Bowie had the column at the New York Times, like, end judicial supremacy now. Uh, Mother Jones, like the most far left of all far left outlets, is talking about ending judicial supremacy, rad radical jurisdiction stripping under the exceptions clause of Art Article 3, Section 2. All these, all these kind of niche, in-the-weeds, Michael Stokes-Paulson-esque legal intricacies that you and I have you know, been shouting into the wilderness for years now. It, it's kind of hilarious in a sense. <laughs> um, you know, I, I found out about Justice Ginsburg's passing. Uh, I'm two hours behind you. He's not here in, in Colorado right now. 
Uh, it was like just before Rosh Hashanah was, was about to start. And, and one of my few tweets that I managed to squeeze in before the holiday started was I said, now would be a perfect time to end judicial supremacy in America, right? It'd be a perfect time for a grand bargain. And yep. you know what? My offer, I mean, I think I speak for you and I, like our offer still stands. I mean, like if, you, if, if, if the political and legal left wants to come to the table and, you know, reassert the principles of Abraham Lincoln in his response to the Dred Scott decision in his first inaugural address, where he couldn't have said more uh, firmly and passionately that the scope of the bonding authority of the Supreme Court is only for the litigants in that particular idiosyncratic lawsuit, now really is the perfect, perfect time in an abstract world to drive on that point. And, you know, I saw Robbie George, the you know prominent social conservative Princeton professor who was actually tweeting about that just this morning, shortly before we went on the air. So I, th- there are people on our side besides me and you who are talking about this, thankfully, um, you know, but like we, you know, we do, we do, we do live in the real world. And it seems like that's unfortunately just not going to happen. Um, I, I, I do share your optimism on gun rights. Um, Brett Kavanaugh, if I recall, uh, he actually was relatively solid on this issue on the DC circuit so much so that I think think you actually was the NRA's preferred candidate for the, for the Kennedy replacement, if I recall. Um, So uh, the votes probably are the only reason why I just say that is just because he was, you saw that big report by, and I'm forgetting his name. um, It's CNN's legal corresponding. He's, he's a Supreme court biographer. Uh, Carl Buskabuck, whatever his name is, however you pronounce that. Uh, basically, he had a tell-all art- article about his sources from inside, and that's where he said that you know Roberts flipped on the DACA opinion. And so in that, he basically – so you had the NRA – I think it was an NRA case out of New York City where – the city of New York basically banned people from transporting their weapons, like even to a range originally. So if you live in New York City, you could literally never go shooting anywhere or travel anywhere. I mean, you could never do anything with it. It was utterly insane, um, clearly violated the Constitution. So in the middle of the litigation, they, they modified it and freed up a lot of that. So what happened was he claims that Roberts – so it was a per curiam opinion, albeit – you had Alito Gorsuch and Thomas dissenting. So we know it wasn't those three. It was per curiam of six. So Kavanaugh and Roberts were on it. Um, He claims that Roberts guided Kavanaugh in writing it. Kavanaugh really wrote it. And it was the mootness thing. And you saw that because Kavanaugh wrote a concurrence basically saying like, you know, he obviously disagreed with Alito and the others on the mootness issue. He felt it was moot, but yes, in general, we do need to take up some of the other appeals with these state laws violating Heller and McDonald. I share Alito's concern that we're really overlooking McDonald and Heller. And, and that would be consistent what, with what Kavanaugh always believed. But my only contention was there's based on that story. It does seem he, Again, it's not an intellectual thing. Kavanaugh is where we are on the Second Amendment 100%. But our concern about him was always like he's susceptible to Robert's shtick that, I mean, let's face it, to permanently ban all 50 states from enacting anti-carry laws would be a huge transformation. At least in, in the blue state, it was a huge transformation. Heller, the, the philosophy in Heller and McDonald dictate that. But... Again, this is not about jurisprudence. You know this. I mean, 
Kavanaugh, does he have the guts to do that? That meaning here's here's the point I'm trying to make, Josh, that the difference between I'm not trying to poo-poo Amy Barrett or poo-poo the significance of the vacancy and, and the need to confirm before the election and and get it done with. But you have to know very clearly what we are and are not getting from it. Because if you think we literally have like a council of revision from our end, like, and look, there are things we would love to, believe me, I would love to have a council of revision handy to have Clarence Thomas decide everything and strike down all the Corona fascism and the regulatory stuff. And, um, anti-gun stuff and all sorts of invasion of privacies, um, egregious, unbelievable invasion of privacy that we are seeing uh, with the corona fascism. But at the end of the day, are, do we really have the votes for that in most cases? So when you compare, l- l- let's just put it simply for our, for our listeners, let's call it judicial defense and offense. So defense is when we're just trying to block them from striking down our stuff. Their you know immigration laws, red states have abortion laws, marriage, transgender you know stuff, um, you know election law, affirmative action. It's endless death penalty, you name it. And then there's us. We go after some of the regulatory stuff, the labor stuff, um, you know things like Citizens United uh, restrictions on campaign finance, and obviously gun restrictions. I am very well aware that there are certain benefits we would get from having that that council of revision on our end or again even understood properly that you know you're granting relief to people that are being criminalized for constitutional rights and we are fine with that but my gosh what they are not understanding is our society would look different if you didn't have the last 50 years of their judicial offense i would trade a heller and a citizens united and that California labor case, oh, I'm forgetting what that's called, but that was a pretty categorical win. We don't win them too often. I would trade that any day. You could not imagine how our society would look if we would do that. I mean, Miranda, just just Miranda is made up. I mean, but my concern is that our side is not going to ride that horse, and what we're basically going to get is the worst of all outcomes. The left is going to do what we sh- what we wanted to do, so they're going to go and if we get a Heller, if we get a campaign fine, they're going to say screw that, you know, in a blue state that they control, we're we're doing what we're doing. But then in the red states where we want to do our stuff, they're still going to have the lower courts aggressively doing their thing. They're actually going to openly say that the Supreme Court has lost legitimacy, so they're just going to take what they've already done with the lower courts and do it even more than they've already done and just totally screw um, with those precedents. But then our side will be too foolish to continue playing the old game. Like, yes, the the the, the ninth circuit, the seventh circuit struck down. Uh, there's nothing we can do until we uh, the Supreme Court to overturn it. While meanwhile, the other side is basically laughing on the prospective gun ruling. Yeah, you know, I, I would struggle to find anything that you just said that I disagree with, Daniel. I I, I had honestly forgotten about 
the New York City gun case from this past April or May, you know, I mean, that the legal merits or, or the legal arguments, as you noted, was mootness. I, I thought Alito had by far the better of the argument for what it's yeah. worth on the actual mootness argument. But, um, you know, I, I, I do take some solace in the fact that Kavanaugh was willing to kind of go out of his way to suggest that. Yeah. Um, but, but look, I, one, one final point on the, on the gun thing, and then I'll make a bit of a pivot, but one thing that gives me additional hope on the gun rights issue is that being pro-gun rights, pro-Second Amendment is a quote-unquote acceptable position for like the libertarian-leaning conservatives mm. who constitute high society, right? You know, the, the Upper East Side of Manhattan, Georgetown cocktail party circuit, those kind of conservatives, kind of like the administrative state, more uh, Koch brothers, libertarian league conservatives, it, it, it's okay in that world to be pro, to be pro gun rights. I mean, I, I mean, don't don't for the sake, you know, don't for your life take the um, take the Alito descending position in Bostock on Title Seven, but it's actually okay to be pro gun rights. I think at least in those social circles, and those are kind of social circles that I think Kavanaugh has been known to trot in over the years. So. That gives me additional solace there as well. One other issue that I actually would like to flag for the listeners, this is like an, this is an issue that I'm actually personally, arguably the most optimistic about that actually could finally, after decades and decades, come out the right side with possibly only one additional nominee. I think we're actually close on this issue. Is actually affirmative action. Um, I, mm. I could I could easily see all the terrible affirmative action precedents going by the wayside with only one more nominee because if you, if you recall. This is actually a rare issue that Chief Justice Roberts himself is really, really passionate about. He gets really mm-hmm. riled up on this issue. I mean, he had, he had that famous line from the Seattle, Washington case of 2007, I think it was, where he famously said, the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And I, I, I actually really do think that one additional nominee could potentially make a huge difference on that one. Kennedy obviously was not even remotely reliable on this issue. We've replaced him with one more that could actually be, be potentially good for us. And, you know, one thing that I've discussed a little bit with uh, our mutual friend and, you know, I would say one of my legal mentors, uh, Adam Mortara, who's a, you know, for the listeners, he's a very, very, very smart, very, very conservative uh, lawyer based at Chicago, formerly clerked for Clarence Thomas. So I, I talk with him a lot about this stuff. Adam actually litigated the Harvard University affirmative action case in federal district court in Massachusetts. Right. The and discrimination talked, against Asian uh, applicants. Yep, exactly. Yeah. He was the he was the lawyer in that case. And we've talked a little bit about this. And, you know, Clarence Thomas is probably the greatest jurist in my perspective over the past century, if not the history of the republic. But he is starting to get up there in age. Yes. And, you, you know, I can start if Trump is reelected, I can see a world in which in a second term, a SCOTUS term ends with Clarence Thomas writing a landmark legacy defining opinion to overturn affirmative action uh-huh. once and for all and then riding into the sunset. And th- that is kind of the image that gives me hope. I try to be I, I you know, you and I, Daniel, I think are infamously perhaps pessimistic <laughs> on I, I, I'm the judiciary and the role of the courts, but I try to cling to that image of Clarence Thomas writing a legacy defining uh, opinion to overturn affirmative action and then just kind of retiring into but, the sunset. But here's my question for you on that. I think too many of our guys are looking at this. Some of these conservative legal people, and I mean the better ones, I'm not talking about, you know, the guys that really don't necessarily share our values. I think they're like in their 
offices typing and reading very studiously on the law. But outside, there are wild animal subhuman individuals that are literally on par with the degree of violence of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And they get a vote. And the thing is, the you have to score this dynamically, not statically. And you have to look at what happens. The left doesn't take stuff sitting down. They react. And we have to have a reaction to their reaction. We never do, and that's part of the problem. So you're right. On a static analysis, if you take... You know, you're saying Roberts would even be with that, but you know, you take Roberts out of the equation, you still have five justices. We should be able to do a lot of good things. But here's the problem: part of the reason why Roberts has screwed us has nothing to do with him changing his mind on the technical legalities or constitutionalities or reading of statutes or anything like that. It's a hundred percent political. And when the Democrats talk about packing the court, limiting the court, um, threatening them just verbally delegitimizing them. So that has its effect. I mean, it's very clear it has its effect on Roberts. Greg Storer of Bloomberg Law, um, he's their legal correspondent. He wrote an interesting article about Kavanaugh becoming the next swing vote. And everyone always gets caught up with the individual. Like, okay, it's it's Sandra Day O'Connor. Okay, it's Kennedy. Okay, this is Roberts' shtick. It's Roberts' game. But has it crossed anyone's mind? And I understand Roberts has his unique obsessions and 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 manipulation. But isn't this a feature of all the non-Thomas justices to a certain extent that once they're on the hot seat and become that fifth vote, they're so worried about the violence of the left, the fallout, appearing like they're siding too much with the right, even though the, the law and the Constitution would compel that, that they're just going to find ways not to do it um, because the more the left is signaling they're going to delegitimize it, the more they're going to push to legitimize it. And the only way they feel they could do that is by e- either shadow banning these cases or, you know what I mean? Like, isn't that a yeah. concern? Yeah, no, I think you're totally right to, you're, you're totally right to mention that. And if anything, you would think that Brett Kavanaugh might be like peculiarly, like idiosyncratically vulnerable to this oh, yeah. as someone who, as someone who is a lifelong creature of, of the swamp, you know, famously grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, right there, Georgetown prep, you know, all of that. And Brett Kavanaugh, of course, you know, lest we forget the elephant in the room went through hell on earth, uh, went through hell on earth yep. two years ago. Um, he had everything thrown at him and his family, and that can go one of two ways, okay? I mean, Clarence Thomas also had hell on earth thrown in him, like probably not quite as bad as Kavanaugh, but it was pretty bad. Um, and you know, the, the first way that it can go is you can actually go the way of Clarence Thomas and double down on all of your convictions and just be a stalwart, you know, give zero, you know, what's kind of jurist for for decades on end. But the other way, of course, which is the less courageous way is to go the route of the people that we're talking about, of the, the Anthony Kennedy, Sandra Day O'Connor, David Souters of the world, and just you know, kowtow to this guy Greg Storr, the Linda Greenhouses of the world, all the leftist legal journalists, and try to win plaudits from them. So I was actually looking very carefully um, after Kavanaugh was confirmed almost two years ago now at his early opinions to see, try to see what kind of early indications there were. There were a couple of early warning signs. He had a he, he had a couple of bad votes on death penalty cases that I think you and I both talked about in our respective columns at the time. 
But actually, overall, I thought I thought Justice Kavanaugh had a pretty good term this past term. Um, if anything, you know, on, on some of the issues where Neil Gorsuch went wobbly, it seemed to me like Kavanaugh was on the correct side. Um, and and that, that, that doesn't mean he's perfect. Far from it. And in fact, there's yeah. a case's past. There's a case's past term, Ramos versus Louisiana. It's a Sixth Amendment case. The, the legal question there was essentially whether state laws that uh, do not require a unanimous uh, jury conviction for criminal convictions, whether those are constitutional. And um, it, it, the opinions in that case ended up focusing a lot on stare decisis and precedence. And Kavanaugh wrote like an 18-page concurrence taking a very middle-of-the-ground kind of academic, I would say milquetoast view of stare decisis. It, it was not something that I was happy to see, frankly. So with that precedent uh, of, of his now on record, you could probably you could see an easy way for him to kind of finagle or, or yes. maneuver out of overturning old precedents. So, yeah, like if you combine that with just his biography of being this beltway creature, um, it is easy to see a world in which he might go cowardly, for lack of a better term. Um, but overall, I you know, I mean, he he dissented in the Bostock case in the Title seven case. Um, you know, he was on the correct side of the McGirt case, that bizarre Oklahoma Indian case that Neil Gorsuch went like. Darn, I forgot about that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, talk to uh, Gorsuch. My goodness. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh man. But yeah, but uh, look, I, I, y- you're raising the right concerns, and, and and you, you're right to be concerned. I think. Is there? So here's my final question. We're out of time. Is there any way that? It, will there be any opportunity to get some degree of certainty from these people? And it's just like, because I get the impression that a lot of our guys feel like it's kind of um, almost like forbidden fruit. It's just you're doing something ethically wrong. And, you know, I feel you and I have the best, most intellectually honest opinion of all. Our Our view is that, you know, it's not a winner take all system with political issues in the courts. But if you are going to treat it that way, it's a super legislature and it, with a vetoing power. So then, yeah, I mean, if I want to know where a president or a um, senator stands on a given immigration issue, social issue, this issue, that issue, you better believe by a factor of 100, I want to know where they stand on the issue. I mean, yes, then we should know because that is the reason why we're not supposed to know judgments is because it was about judgment. It wasn't about deciding broad political social issues. But it, but if it if it is, which I don't want it to be, but that's your system, then, yeah, you better believe I want certainty about clearly the way I, I should know. that This is not like, well, Daniel, this is a complicated case. I got to wait till the case comes before me. dude. Illegal aliens are as if they're standing outside our country. You cannot unilaterally assert jurisdiction. What does that subject to jurisdiction mean? Do children of illegal aliens, are they entitled to birthright citizenship? You know what I mean? There's no split the baby there. There's no nuance. There's no gradations. There's no permutations. It's straight up. I mean, that is straight up. How do you look at the 14th Amendment? Don't we? I mean, is there any way to get some of these questions? We, we don't know. No, there are a ton of black boxes out there, Daniel. And, um, you know, I the problem is that with this judicial supremacist paradigm, the judiciary has become such a binary win-lose proposition. And, you know, a lot of like personal friends who are who are on our quote unquote side, um, unfortunately, subscribe to this paradigm. And when the mentality is win back the courts, nominate, confirm a jurist at all costs, 
you do lose kind of the forest for the trees here. You are at, you are liable. You are at risk to forget what exactly it is we're trying to win back the courts to do in the first instance. So you're raising the right questions. Um, and I, look, I do hope that these are the kind of things that, you know, the few remaining intellectually honest conservatives on Senate Judiciary Committee, like the, you know, Josh Hawley's, Ted Cruz's of the world, people like that. I, I, I would hope that these questions will get raised at the confirmation hearing of whoever the nominee is, whether it's Amy Coney Barrett or, or someone else. Um, but I look, even, even senators of that caliber, of that intellectual heft, like truly do care about the cause on that committee. Um, you know, like ultimately it is kind of a, especially, especially given this calendar that, that Republicans are working with, it's going to be a rush to just confirm the nominee at all costs. So I'm, I, I'm not particularly optimistic that we're going to get the yeah. kind of fulsome discussions that I think you and I would both crave and that you've done such a bang up job this week of writing in your columns. But, um, you know, I, I can see a world at least in which like a Senator Hawley or Senator Cruz asks like an actual, you know, legally hefty doctrinal question along the lines of what we're talking about. That would be nice. But yeah, I mean, we're, we're not going to know. But I think this is something to watch. Are the Democrats going to ultimately do the job we always wanted to do? Not from a principal point of view, because they think they're losing the game that they helped create. But look, you know, I'll take it. And I think the biggest challenge going forward is that our side doesn't dogmatically stick to the paradigm that even the left moves off of. For, because of this false sense of security that they think we're going to win from the courts when, I mean, look, you know, if I saw left and right, like Corona fascism was being struck down, I'd be like, Hey, you know, maybe there's something to it just politically, but like, it's not, I mean, the, 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 the victories are very few and far between relative to how much we lose out from um, this notion of the courts being the final arbiter. So I would much rather if the left starts doing it for their cases, then we sure as heck, should follow suit. And, um, you know, that's what it is. I, I, I just think ultimately, ultimately, the problem with so many of these legal academics, political conservatives, they don't realize what is going on outside, on outside that window. Like, they think we could preserve the country and all its institutions in the traditional way and make everyone happy. I wish that were the case, but the left gets a vote on that, and you you cannot live with them anymore. I mean, that, that is that's never going to work. The two options are us being thrown under their tyranny and anarchy in all fifty states, or them having their sandbox in their areas, but us preserving some modicum of a republic where we control. Um, we're not going to win it all, and and that is unfortunately very clear. So there's no point in us, you know, diluting our stuff to them in the hopes that they'll walk towards us and we can have some sort of unity. Sadly, that ship has sailed. And um, I think we just need to pursue this accordingly. Josh, keep us updated. I want you to update us on what you're hearing maybe next week or two weeks from now as we head towards confirmation hearings. Um, again, folks, you could follow his writings, um, his syndicated columns, and uh, you definitely follow him on Twitter. Where else could people see your work? Yeah, so follow me on Twitter is the easiest way. I, I my syndicated column gets distributed to a um, handful of places: um, Town Hall, American Greatness, uh, the New York Post actually just picked it up. Um, but follow, follow me on Twitter is the easiest way, Josh underscore Hammer. And then obviously, as you know, as you mentioned, Daniel, I also 
oversee the opinion page at, at Newsweek. So if you go to Newsweek's opinion page, that's uh, that's my that's my day to day work as well. By the way, you cannot imagine how many people have said to me, Daniel, what's happened to Newsweek? Um, <laughs> no, because people really see the quality of. Um, you know, not, and it's not just a matter of right or left. Just the quality of the opinion there is really tremendous. You actually should check it out. Don't um, go into it with some of your preconceived notions from the 1990s or so, or you know, whenever you used to read that. It's become a very, very good publication. Um, a lot of uh, very quality material. Josh, thanks as always for joining us, folks. We are way out of time. Have a terrific weekend. Same time, same place on Tuesday. I'll be out Monday in honor of Yom Kippur. But until then, God bless you all. Stay safe and stay armed.